This morning's message is the third in this series. Two weeks ago we started in the very first verse of Luke chapter 1 through to 25 and we considered how Gabriel's announcement of John's birth was the answer to prayer for a waiting couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and also a waiting people, the nation of Israel. And then last week in the second message, we considered how Gabriel's announcement of Jesus' birth and Mary's reaction to it foreshadowed that God was fulfilling this age-old promise that he had given, that he was going to send the seed of the woman who was going to crush the head of the serpent. Now you probably noticed already that the title of, uh, well you wouldn't notice it because uh, we are without slides this morning. We had a crash in part of our computer system this morning so we have no access to the internet or anything like that. And so they couldn't get the slides to project them. So by this point you'd have seen the title of the message but you wouldn't have seen it yet. The title of the message this morning instead of Mary's song, is Christ's deity, Christ's deity and God's mercy. Christ's deity and God's mercy. Our text is the same, but the title has changed. And this morning we are going to be picking up in verse 39. We left off at verse 38 last week. But before we get to the text, let me just take a few moments to once again remind you of Luke's purpose for writing his gospel. We find it in verse 4 of chapter 1. Luke wrote his gospel to a man by the name of Theophilus, and he did so so that Theophilus might have certainty about the things he had been taught about Jesus Christ. Now even though Luke's gospel was written primarily to Theophilus, Luke's gospel has the same function for all of God's people. It helps us to have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught about Jesus Christ. And remember again that Luke is not just writing random thoughts and he's going to finish when he's tired. Luke is working towards a specific end. And that specific end is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he knows how essential it is for Theophilus and all the other readers of his gospel to have certainty about the one who was crucified, the one who was resurrected. So what Luke does at the beginning of his gospel is he labors to help us to see that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. He was indeed the Savior of the world who lived a sinless life, who performed miracles that only God could perform and who went to the cross and died a substitutionary death on behalf of sinners Luke wants us to know this is the one who died on that cross and who resurrected on the third day and you can have certainty to put your faith in him as your savior so Luke is doing Luke is writing a very purposeful gospel and brothers and sisters, Luke felt the need to give Theophilus certainty even though he was writing some 30 years after Jesus had been on the earth. This is only about 30 years removed, Luke's, Luke's uh, uh, gospel. 
And so when we, when we consider that fact, we should bear in mind that we who are removed some 2,000 years from that, even so we need certainty, even more so we need certainty about who this one is who died on the cross and who was resurrected and that one is the one that we're talking about this morning in Luke's introduction to the gospel of Jesus Christ so let us with that introduction now read beginning in verse 39 Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what God, of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we are considering a section of your word that some consider to be fantasy and fable. Or there are some who dismiss out of hand this story about God coming down in human flesh. And so Lord, we pray this morning that the same effect the intended effect of Luke's gospel on Theophilus's heart would be upon our hearts this morning. Father, may we all grow in certainty about the one who was born, 
and eventually crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. Lord, where there is, where there might be doubt in our hearts, would you, through the preaching of your word this morning, bring certainty and conviction. We ask, O Lord, that you would grant us illumination by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask that you would help me to care for these who are gathered here. These who you brought by your sovereign dealings. And Father, I pray that you'd cause us all to hear as we should and then to obey as we ought. Would you grant me grace, Lord, to bring your word to your people. Lord, knowing that without you I can do nothing. So Lord, we thank you and we trust you now for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. This account before us is one of one between two women, two pregnant women, a virgin named Mary and her cousin named Elizabeth. Mary was a few days pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth about six months pregnant with John. And while this might seem like a mere recounting of history that we have before us, we must remember that Luke was more than just a careful historian. Luke was also a faithful theologian. And so in this account, what, in this account, what Luke is doing, as he does in the rest of his gospel, is he is doing more than just recording history. Luke is also teaching us theology. He was teaching Theophilus theology to give him certainty. He is teaching us theology to give us certainty about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what we see is that Luke continues to unfold God's redemptive purposes. And in this passage before us, we see two aspects of God's redemptive purposes on display in Mary's pregnancy and in Mary's song. And here's how I would summarize this display in her pregnancy and in her song. In Mary's pregnancy, Luke shows us Christ's deity, and in her song, he shows us God's mercy. In her pregnancy, he shows us Christ's deity, and in her song, he shows us or he highlights God's mercy. And in our remaining time this morning, I want to consider how this passage speaks to us concerning these two theological truths, the deity of Christ and the mercy of God, Christ's deity and God's mercy. So let's consider the first one, Christ's deity. Notice in verse 1 that we again have a change of location. This time we have moved from a town in Galilee to a town in Judah. A few verses earlier, the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that through the power of the Holy Spirit, she was going to conceive and bear a child who would be the Son of God, and she was to call him Jesus. But that's not all that Gabriel told her. Gabriel also told her that her cousin, her old cousin Elizabeth, who was known to be barren, was six months pregnant. And I believe that it is that bit of information that caused Mary to make haste to go to this 
town in Judah. I really don't think that if all Gabriel had told her was that she was going to conceive this child who was going to be the son of God, that she would have immediately thought, I'm going to go visit Elizabeth. I don't think that would have been the immediate reaction in her mind. But Gabriel told us something that humanly was impossible, and Gabriel said, though this was impossible, this has happened. And so naturally she wants to go and see her old cousin Elizabeth. And so, as we see in verse 39, she arises in haste and she goes to her cousin Elizabeth. Now this seems like a very kind of by the way thought that she goes from Nazareth to uh, to Judah, but it was quite a feat for a young girl like her. We don't know the exact town in Judah that she went to, but we are told generally by uh, those who study these things that this journey would have been some 80 to 100 miles. It was the distance from where she was in Nazareth to the southern part of Judah, where she would have gone. And we're also told that this would have taken some three to four days for her to make this journey. And you can easily see that for a young girl who's about 13 years old, this was no small feat. We see that Mary enters the house of her old cousin and she greets her. And we're told in verse 41 that six months old John leaps in Elizabeth's womb. Now some would say to us that, oh, well, that's kind of normal. That's not unusual that a six-month-old baby would be kicking. And he just happened to kick when she walked in. But here again, Luke being this careful historian that he is, that he was, and this careful theologian that he also was, he helps us to see that this was no normal kind of kicking. He helps us to see that this leap from John was not a baby moving around in the womb. And he does this by pointing out to us that it was the Holy Spirit who supernaturally revealed to both John in the womb and to Elizabeth that Mary was pregnant with the Messiah. So baby John is in the womb. He is not able to talk, so he leaps for joy in the womb. And this would remind us of the words of Gabriel to Zechariah in verse 15 earlier when he said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And here we also see that John the Baptist was already functioning, even from the womb, he was already functioning in the role that he was given by God to point to the Messiah. And from the womb he is pointing to the Messiah and he leaps for joy. Because now the Messiah, though days old in Mary's womb, the Holy Spirit has revealed to him the Messiah is here. He tells us also that Elizabeth herself was, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaims in a loud cry, and she blesses Mary, and she blesses the child in her womb. And she marvels that the mother of her Lord has come to see her. And she explains the timing of John's leap. She says, when I heard the sound of your voice, as soon as I heard it, as soon as it came into my ear, the child leaped in my womb. 
Now the question is, when we consider this, again, and I know I've touched on this, but I, I don't want us to miss this. Why did John leap and why was Elizabeth stirred by Mary's voice? It wasn't because the voice was special. It wasn't because she was special. It was because of the child in her womb, even though he would have been just a few days old. Now, I think it's important for us to note that Luke wants us to see in Mary's pregnancy Christ's deity. And that's why he is giving us this dramatic account of what happened when Mary entered the room. And this account also is a confirmation for Mary of all that Gabriel had said to her. So what we see in verse 45 is Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. She says to Mary, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the word of the Lord. So this has happened. Mary believed it and now it has happened. And Elizabeth, in the power of the Holy Spirit, helps her to see that um, you believed it and now it has been fulfilled. Now I don't want to assume that everybody is tracking with me when I talk about Christ's deity, but when I refer to the deity of Christ, I simply mean that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. He was God who came down in human flesh. And what we see is that even though Mary had not said anything to Elizabeth, she had simply entered the house and given her a customary kind of greeting. She didn't say to her anything that the angel had told her, yet she hears Elizabeth calling this child in her womb, Lord. That's what Mary said. That's what Elizabeth said. Elizabeth said, the mother of my Lord has come to see me. And that's the exact same title that Gabriel gave to God when he spoke to, to Mary. I want us to see this. Look at verse 28. Go back a bit to verse 28. When Gabriel first came to Mary, he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then in verse 32, Gabriel says to Mary, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And then back to our text in verse 43, Elizabeth refers to Jesus as Lord as she refers to Mary as the mother of of my Lord. And then finally in verse 45, when Mary refers to that which was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth referred to, referred to that. That which was spoken to her from the Lord. She's referring to God the Father and she's using the same title that she had just given to Jesus as Lord. And, and let me just pause a moment to say that See, this is how we get our understanding of God. God reveals himself to us in Scripture. And it is as we, as we read Scripture, we see in one location that God the Father is being referred to as Lord. And then we see in another location that Jesus the Son is being referred to as Lord. And it teaches us about their co-equality. 
And this, is, this, this happens throughout Scripture where we, we see these interchangeable references and titles to both God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is how we get uh, doctrine of God that God has revealed into His Word for us that we serve a triune God. And right now we're seeing Father and, and, and uh, Son come into interview. Now, my point this morning is not simply to try to just say, oh, you know, there are some similar titles and just in a vacuum talk about the deity of Jesus Christ. That's not my point this morning. My point this morning is to help us to see that this is the one. Luke is saying to us, this is the one who is in Mary's womb because again, this is the one who's going to die on the cross. This is the one who's going to offer his life as a substitutionary death on behalf of sinners. It's quite interesting that apart from the Holy Spirit, John would never know that Jesus was the Messiah, the Lord. Apart from the Holy Spirit, Mary, sorry, Elizabeth would never know that Jesus was her Lord. It was by the revelation of the Holy Spirit that she was able to see that. And brothers and sisters, this morning, for those of us who see that, those of us who have come to believe that, those of us who have come to be persuaded that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord, it is, it is for the same reason that the Lord said to Peter. He said, the only reason you know this, Peter, when he was in Caesarea Philippi, he says, the only reason that you know that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, is that the Father has revealed it to you. Otherwise, you would not know it. And for those of us this morning who in our hearts of hearts know that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that he is indeed the Messiah, God come down in human flesh, it is because God through the Holy Spirit has revealed that precious truth to us. No amount of brilliance, no amount of human ability and understanding and insight would bring us to that conviction. I can stand here and, and give you reference after reference to show how interchangeably there are these titles between the Father and, and the Son, and I can do that until I'm blue in the face and away from the revelation of the Holy Spirit. None of us could be persuaded of that. The revelation of who Jesus was on that day when Mary walked into that house came through the Holy Spirit and today, brothers and sisters, it is no different. And for those of us who believe, we rejoice that the Holy Spirit has revealed this to us. And for those who don't believe, for those who don't believe this morning, Recognize your need for God's help. Recognize your need for the Spirit's illumination to open your eyes to see that Jesus is indeed the Christ. If you're, if you're thinking that you're going to just work this out by yourself and you're going to do this on your own terms and in your own time, it will never happen away from the work of the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. And so I say to you this morning, cry out to the Lord. I said, God, would you open my eyes and help me to see Jesus as the Messiah?
and, and this belief is more than just something that is factual and academic in our minds. The belief in Jesus that we see in Scripture is a life-transforming belief. When we become persuaded that Jesus is indeed the Christ, we stake our lives on it. We want to serve Him. We will sacrifice for Him. We want to live for Him. And, 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 and that is, that is a, a kind of like an acid test to help us to see whether our belief is biblical belief, whether it is true belief. The Bible says even demons believe. And they do better than some people. They tremble. So mere academic mental belief is not it. When true belief comes to us, it is a transforming belief. It is a life-transforming belief that comes to us. We turn from sin and we live a life of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the belief that we see laid out for us in Scripture. And I'm not just talking to adults this morning when I say this. When I talk about this life-transforming belief, not just to adults. I'm speaking to the youngest child in this room this morning who is able to understand me. Jesus Christ, when we believe in Him, transforms our lives. And if you believe in Him this morning, if you put your faith in Him this morning, through the revelation that only the Holy Spirit can bring, your life will be transformed. And you will gladly live for Him and gladly want to serve Him. Now by highlighting Christ's deity in Mary's pregnancy again, Luke is not just making theological points in a vacuum. He's, he's moving towards that end of showing that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. Now let's consider the second theological truth that's highlighted in the passage before us. It is God's mercy. First Christ's deity in that encounter between Elizabeth and Mary and now God's mercy and we see this in Mary's song in verses 46 through 55. Although Mary believed the word from the time it was spoken to her by the angel she was now experiencing the fulfillment of it. She sees with her own eyes as she walks into the room her old cousin who could not have children when she was younger. She can see that she is visibly pregnant. At six months, she's visibly pregnant. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, tells her that when she walked into the room, the six months old child in her womb leaped at the sound of her greeting and then Elizabeth addresses her and blesses her and says to her that you are the mother of my Lord and I think Mary was just overcome by it all this 13 year old girl all these things have happened this morning as we were praying uh, Myrna led us through just a, an excellent time of, of prayer this morning and one of the things that she shared was that Mary was the most astonished person in the Christmas story. She's the most amazed person by what the angel said to her and the things that she had experienced. And so she breaks out into singing. She breaks out into a song of praise to God, a song that we commonly 
referred to as the Magnificat. And here I think it's helpful again for us to pause and remember that this is a young girl, about 13 years old. This is a very young girl. And as we consider this song that she sings to the Lord, and we consider how the Lord used her, it should remind us this morning, especially young people, you are not too young for the Lord to use you. And you are not too young to be serious with the Lord about your walk with Him. And parents, it should remind us as well about the standards that we can hold our children to. Sometimes we hold our children to far too low a standard and we have so little expectations of them. And here we're reminded we should be provoked by Mary's example and we should be encouraged to raise our children to serve God in their youth and to give him the best of their years. The word Magnificat comes from the first word of the Latin translation of the first line of Mary's song when she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. And when we consider Mary's song, it matches the structure of a typical psalm in the Psalms. And Mary's song is the first song about the incarnation in Scripture. It is the first song that rejoices in God coming down in human flesh. So this is a very interesting picture of Mary in the house of Zechariah. It tells us that she entered the house of Zechariah. And so we have this 13-year-old virgin who, unlike Zechariah, believed God. And God's word had now been performed in her life as confirmed by her cousin and she is just overwhelmed with God's redemptive work in her life personally and for his people generally. Mary understood that this was not just about her. Mary was not just rejoicing about the privilege that she could be the Messiah's mother. But when we study Mary's song, we're able to see that Mary had a broader view and she saw the redemptive purposes of God for his people in a general way. Now we're not told if Zechariah was at home, but I suspect he was at home. He was probably secluded because he couldn't talk and couldn't relate to other people. And I imagine the house was such that he could have heard, scripture doesn't tell us that he was deaf, scripture tells us that he would have been made dumb, but he could have heard Mary's song. Mary's song was a song of faith and would have no doubt reminded him of, of his unbelief. Here is Mary singing while he was dumb. When we study Mary's song, it is very clear that Mary was familiar with God's word. She was not just lifting up empty words and empty platitudes that had no connection to anything related to God, but she was lifting up the Word of God that she had no doubt committed to memory. And we see that in almost every line of a song, there's a reference to the Psalms. And she actually begins singing her song in the same way that Hannah sang her song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, after the Lord blessed Hannah with a child after many, many years of waiting. 
And what is so clear is that Mary was among God's people who were looking for the promised redemption as recorded in Holy Scripture. And so what Mary does is she sings about God's mercy. First, Mary sings about God's mercy to her personally. Look at it in verses 46 through 49. Mary rejoices in what God has done for her. She identifies God as a Savior, and in so doing, she acknowledges that she is a sinner. She acknowledges that she is in need of a Savior. And she is overwhelmed that the God of the universe has looked upon her, a poor young virgin from the town of Nazareth, a town of no reputation, and blessed her with the privilege of bearing the Savior of the world. And then we see in verses 48 and 49 that Mary humbly acknowledges that all generations will call her blessed. <coughs> Excuse me. Not because she was born without sin, as taught in Roman Catholicism, but because the Mighty One had done great things for her, and His name was holy. Not her name, but His name was holy. So Mary's testimony is about God's gracious dealings with herself. She praises God and in so doing she gives us an example of what we should be doing, praising God and not praising her. But yet there are millions, countless millions in Roman Catholicism who worship Mary and pray to Mary. But Mary's song is not about Mary. Mary's song is about her Savior's gracious dealings with her and Mary herself tells a different story. She says, I rejoice in my God. I rejoice in my Savior because he has looked on my humble estate. And she points us to magnify God and not herself. No doubt to the forefront of Mary's mind was her lowly condition, her lowly place in Nazareth, and when Nazareth is mentioned, Nathaniel says, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? But in God looking on this insignificant girl, looking down upon her, being mindful of her, it should be a reminder to all of us of God's personal care for us. No matter how obscure our circumstances might be, no matter how obscure they might be, they never put us beyond God's view. God knew Mary's address and he knows ours as well. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what our circumstances are. The God of the universe keeps us all in view and none of us is hidden from his gaze. This should be an encouragement to all of us. All of us this morning that our less than desirable circumstances will never put us out of God's sight, will never put us beyond the reach of God's mercy. And I pray this morning that as we consider the faith of this young teenage girl, we would be inspired to take God at, at his word. And may his gracious dealings with her remind us that God likewise will do great things for us. Now after singing about God's mercy to herself, Mary transitions and she sings about God's mercy to his people, starting in verse 50 and ending in verse 55. 
First, we're told in verse 50 that, that God's mercy is for those who fear him. And here, fear is not terror. Instead, fear means reverence and worship of God. Mary is talking about God's mercy towards his people in terms of his redemptive acts throughout history. Still in verse 50, Mary sings about God's mercy that it is from generation to generation. It never ceases. And this refutes this idea. There's some people who tell us that, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he wasn't too merciful. He was kind of hard. And it is not until the New Testament that when Jesus comes, then we see God no longer being angry and showing mercy. No, Mary says his mercy is from generation to generation. It, it, it speaks about God in his existence that, that he, he was and he is and he will be. He always was and he always will be. And his mercy is the same because his mercy is part of who he is. His mercy never ceases. He is a God of mercy. In verses 51 through 53, we see that while God extends his mercy to the humble, he also exercises his might against the proud. He brings down the mighty from their high horse. He exalts the humble and he fills those who in humility recognize their emptiness. Those who recognize their emptiness, he fills them, but those who don't see their emptiness, he sends them away. Because in their own eyes, they need nothing. In their own eyes, they're rich. And when we read these words, we can't escape the redemptive language that, that Mary is incorporating in her song. In verses 54 and 55, when she says that God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary is going back and she is touching over many many generations this promise that God made that he was going to bless and extend mercy to people through Abraham. Mary is referencing no doubt historical events throughout redemptive history when God brought down mighty people like Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and how he raised up the humble like Joseph and David and Daniel and Esther. But there's also a sense that Mary is singing about what the incarnation means. That the incarnation is a breaking into human history. That it is a realignment of life. It is a readjustment of life as it generally is. Exalting the humble and bringing down the proud. And God is extending his mercy to those who are humble. And he is exercising his might against the proud. In a, in a sense, we see that Mary's language is also speaking about the incarnation and its effect. That God is breaking into human history. And he is adjusting the order of things. When we consider these verses as Mary talks about God's mercy to his people it reminds us that really there are only two ways to live we can live as those to whom God's mercy is extended or we can live as those against whom God's might is exercised that's what, that's what he does he gives mercy to the humble 
and he exercises his might. His strength is against those who are proud and who are lifted up. So I want to ask us this morning, what are we experiencing? What are we experiencing in our lives right now at this point? Are we experiencing the mercy that comes because we recognize our emptiness and our neediness and our brokenness? Or are we experiencing God's might exercised against us because we refuse to acknowledge our need, that we are empty, that we are needy, that we are broken. We prop ourselves up. We pretend to be who we really are not. And we go on with business as usual. What are we experiencing this morning? Mercy from this God who eagerly extends it to those who would humble themselves and say, God, I am empty. God, I am needy. God, I am broken. Or is God resisting us? Are we experiencing His strength because we will not humble ourselves and acknowledge our great need for Him? Well, that's you this morning, and you realize that you are not experiencing God's mercy, and you realize that you have a hard time acknowledging your need and your brokenness and your neediness. God is extending his mercy to you even in this. Even in this moment, God is extending his mercy to you, calling you to humble yourself and see your neediness and see your brokenness and see your emptiness. When we consider Mary's song, it doesn't take us long to see that although Mary rejoiced because of what God had done for her. The Magnificat is about God. The Magnificat magnifies God. And this is instructive for those of us who have experienced God's mercy. When we experience God's mercy, we are to magnify God. Those of us who have experienced God's mercy in the forgiveness of our sins, we have experienced God's mightiest deed that he has accomplished on behalf of his people. No other deed is greater. And we therefore should magnify the Lord. Mary magnified the Lord for what he had done in her womb. And we should magnify the Lord for what he has done in our hearts and in our lives. I recognize this morning that there are some who can't sing Mary's song in a sense you're like Zechariah you are mute the merciful God extends mercy and you're mute and my heart breaks for you this morning you need God's mercy but you can't sing because God has not been merciful to you in terms of your own experience. You don't know the reality of his mercy. Though you desperately need it. The good news this morning is that you can know that mercy. 
You can know that mercy. You too can have a song to sing. You too can be overwhelmed by the mercy of God to the undeserving and sing a song that magnifies Him. And so I call you today, humble yourself. Acknowledge your need for mercy. Mary said it is from generation to generation. So that mercy is real this morning. It is extended this morning. As a matter of fact, that mercy is more real this morning than when Mary sang about it. Because the one through whom that mercy was going to come, the one through whom the promise of mercy was going to be fulfilled, no longer in Mary's womb but he was born and he lived on this earth and he lived a perfect life a life that we never could live and then he died a substitutionary death so that God could forgive and reconcile sinners and so this morning that mercy is more real that Mary sang about than it was on that day and mercy is real today. Scripture says that God will not turn away anyone who comes to Him. And today, if you mean business with God, He'll mean business with you. If you come to Him, He says, I will not turn you away. I will receive you. And never, ever turn you away. Brothers and sisters, that's mercy. Because if we're honest with ourselves, all of us would acknowledge we deserve anything but mercy. We deserve wrath and judgment and punishment for our sins. But through Jesus Christ, mercy can be extended to us. I pray this morning that all those who are here, if you don't know Jesus Christ, my prayer is that you will not leave this place today before you humble yourself, recognize your need, confess your sins to the Lord Jesus, and trust Him as your Savior and as your Lord. But in the final verse of our text, in verse 56, Luke sets up the next scene, which is the birth of John. And so he skillfully has Mary to exit, and she goes back to her home, but she's three months pregnant. The Lord willing, next week we'll pick up at verse 57 and consider the birth of John. Let's pray.